chapter 24. I, when we did Isaiah before, I didn't get this far. Um, and uh, doesn't ring any bells, does it? I saw that hand, just kidding. Um, the reason it doesn't jump out at you is because uh, it's very difficult. The other reason is because Isaiah chapter 24 through 27 is one unit. It's not all one poem, but it's all poetry. And it all sort of fits together. And so it's four chapters of, of Hebrew poetry slog. And it's wonderful. And it's challenging. And there's a constant faith in God that the effort you're putting forth as you study it in its original is going to bear fruit in the edification of God's people. Um, because uh, the poetic devices are artistic and beautiful, but they aren't as, as such doctrinal very often. And um, we do walk by faith, not by sight in that way. And I do commit the time the way I do that way to, to the study of the word. And so my plan for tonight is for us to digest chapter 24, verses 1 through 20, which is you know, kind of your first salvo, the first poem of uh, the coming wrath and glory of, uh, of God's end state, of what he's going to do. And so it is prophets of doom tonight, mostly doom, because of the wrath that is coming at the end. God is bringing a final judgment on the earth dwellers. It is imminent in, a, in the sense that it is, it is coming and nothing's going to stop it. It's coming at its own appointed time. And the earth dwellers are not going to be ready for it. They're not going to be able to bear it. And all the questions we have of how long, O Lord, will generally be answered in that season of God's wrath. But it isn't wrath without mercy. And it isn't wrath devoid of God's glory. In fact, it's wrath that showcases the glory of God. And so now you have a little bit of a sense of what we're seeking to undertake tonight, which means that we need to take a moment for silent prayer, make sure we're in fellowship with God, opening our hearts to the work of the Spirit of God in us through His precious Word uh, as we look to Isaiah chapter 24 tonight. Let's pray. Father, despite our wretchedness and our constant uh, lack in terms of our moral character, in terms of our faithfulness, in terms of all the things that we desire, we so often find ourselves, like Paul describing himself in in Romans chapter 7, in constant need of your mercy and your grace. And we're so thankful that we have it because we have the Son, we have the Lord Jesus Christ, and nothing can snatch us out of your hand, out of his hand, for you are omnicompetent. You're infinitely capable of doing all that you've said. And you've said so many wonderful things. We thank you that you've given us your precious son as our savior. You've revealed yourself to us through the words of scripture, through the coming of your son and his instruction, through what the apostles have been given by Christ and then empowered by the spirit to write down. And father, we thank you for the voices of those through the church history have in your spirit taken careful heed to your word and have taught us, have shared what they had come to understand of who you are and what you expect and what that says about us. Father, we love theology, but we know it comes from your word, and we pray that you'd open our hearts tonight to see the riches of your grace, even in Isaiah 24. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
A good way to start the little apocalypse of Isaiah 24 is to ask a simple theological question for everyone present. And those of you who are at home, uh, you know, you can, you can play along, even though I won't see your hand. But don't worry, nobody here in person raises their hand either, um, which is fine. Um, the question is, who wants to be miserable? This is one of my favorite questions that I saw Jim Myers, our missionary in, in Kiev, uh, ask uh, kids at camp, Arete, one year. Who wants, by show of hands, who wants to be miserable? And, and nobody ever raises their hand, but most everybody lives as though the answer is yes. And that is a fascinating thing. When I say most everyone, I'm speaking out of a lot of study of Isaiah 24 where God is dealing with everybody. He's dealing with the dwellers on the earth. And the dwellers on the earth all have a problem, and it's a problem, a personal problem, with the personal God with whom we must deal. And the personal problem the earth dwellers have, even in our day, even, even the, the, your friends and neighbors, the people in your life, the people around you, the people on the list, The problem that the earth dwellers have with their creator is they can't see him and they think that what they come to understand should happen through their normal channels of understanding without much reflection on how they came to know anything. In other words, what I'm saying is they think that if they can't see it, it isn't there. And if somebody says, no, we've got measurements and your your eyes can't see uh, radioactive decay and, and radioactive material, you can't see it, but it's there, and we can measure it. Well, I can see measurement, and I can see effects from it, and so I believe that. And we believe in our fallenness that the world, the universe, the reality we're in is simply material. My body feels tired, and so I go to bed and rest it. And it physically rejuvenates. It does the things that need to happen when I'm asleep. And I experience that. And so that's what life is. It's just the physical. It's material. And we are, after all, just animals. That's the way the world tends to think. And the enemy of God, the enemy of your soul, your adversary, the devil, wants you to think that way. And the problem mankind has is we're arrogant and we think that the way we come to know things in the material realm is the way we come to know anything. And if we can't know it that way, then we can't know it at all. And that's the Kantian problem of saying that there is the noumenal or the phenomenal in, in the realm we can observe and, the, and the, the noumenal and the beyond. And you can't know those things for sure. It's not real knowledge or something. And, uh, and you end up with great skepticism about the things of God. Meanwhile, God is standing there saying everything in the material universe is a testimony to my person, my nature, and my glory. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. The earth testifies. The universe we live in, the material world, is a testimony to someone who made it that way. And the problem of the man of the human race is that not only are we arrogant in our insistence on learning the way we want to learn, I need to know the way I want to know, by my, see, by my seeing, by my own personal reasoning. I'm going to invent a God of my own de- devices. Not only do we do this in our arrogance about knowing, we've got a personal problem with righteousness. Because that being that I'm talking about who is there, whether you see him or not and you can't, or whether you believe it or not and you should, that being is perfectly righteous and we're not. And the comparison, the contrast between me and God, between my best efforts in God's infinite righteousness, I might as well be wallowing in uh, filthy rags. My best righteousness that I bring is a cesspool. It is that which is 
flushed far outside the camp. It is the thing that is completely rejected by the Creator. And that is too much for my arrogance to accept, that I'm not good enough. And that's the problem of the human race. And God is saying that whether we're listening or not. And God is going to deal with the earth dwellers, whether they, in their reasoning or their observation, intuit that or not. And the earthquakes are going to shatter the planet and kill a quarter of the population. These things are going to happen And God said they were going to happen, and he used his man Isaiah to say uh, some of these things. Now, the reason we call Isaiah 24 through 27 the little apocalypse is because a lot of its contents is, and it's in foggy sort of, it's art. So it's in a foggy presentation by God's design. There's not as much clarity. We, We know a lot of principles, but sequencing them and arranging them and understanding how they fit is really hard for us. And it was hard back then. But when you get to the apocalypse, the revelation, that's the Greek word for revelation of the apostle John, which closes the scriptures. When you get to this, there's much more clarity. There's much more certainty about things that were stated in Daniel and stated in Isaiah, stated in Jeremiah that are given more of their clarity. And as you might know, the Bible book that quotes the Old Testament the most, the New Testament book that quotes the Old Testament the most is the book of Revelation, the most allusions. It's a, it's a compendium of all that stuff that was talked about that seemed like it was coming in the distant future and sensational and conflagrational, all these things. At the eschaton, at the end, Revelation describes them and it puts some names to some persons. And God is going to defeat Leviathan. He is going to be de- defeat Leviathan, and that doesn't just mean Assyria in verse 1 of chapter 27 in Isaiah. And so, um, so it's a big challenge in front of us. But the greater challenge, you've already over- overcome God's grace, by God's grace, through the gospel, the power of the Spirit, you've already overcome the greatest hurdle. And that is that arrogance that says, I'm not going to hear from a creator that I can't see or touch on my terms. And I'm certainly not going to deal with someone that once I can understand him or or know about him, he's telling me that I'm a sinner and that I'm odious to him. I am noisome. That's one of my favorite English words. Do you know what noisome means? This is a really good thing for you students to learn. It's going to come up on your SATs or ACTs. When it does, when number 18 on your ACT vocabulary test says noisome, and you know that it means bad smelling, foul smelling, when when you get it right, remember Pastor Dave, Noisome. We think noisome means sound because noise, but it actually means nose. It means it stinks. And that's us before righteousness and the perfect righteousness of God. And that is the explanation for God bringing the heavy guns in the little apocalypse of Isaiah 24 on all of the earth dwellers. Another thing to introduce this little portion of scripture that I think will help thematically is he introduces this concept of those who reside on earth. Those who dwell on earth, those who yashav to dwell or reside on the Eretz, on the earth. The earth dwellers is a big topic in Isaiah, in Matthew 24 and 25, and Revelation chapter 6 through 19. And it is a reference to unbelief every time. It doesn't mean me. I'm a believer. I'm part of the remnant according to the election of grace. I'm part of those people, the few people on planet earth that by God's grace am not an earth dweller. This world is not my home. And I shouldn't live and think and and act as though it is because it's a lie that I'm telling myself that the world is telling me. 
the earth dwellers is the theme, and they are the target of God's wrath through Isaiah chapter 24 through 27. Well, there is J. Alec Motyer. I forget when he passed away, but an English um, Bible scholar who has, as I've told you before, the best commentary on Isaiah in English. He's done a couple of commentaries, a big one and a little one. He did a lot of, of his life's work on Isaiah. And out in the broader uh, evangelical, even post-conservative evangelical community, and you could say boo and hiss about that, um, the Gospel Coalition and these kinds of people that are post-conservatives, um, you can, uh, you can, they'll, they'll talk about Motyer as they, the, he's a model for their preaching and they really like his preaching. I don't know anything about his homiletics. I've listened to him a little bit, but he has a really good grasp of the complexity and the depth of what's being presented in Isaiah. And this is an example of it. This is what I'm calling his big outline of the little apocalypse in Isaiah chapters 24 through 27, four chapters of Isaiah, all poetic, all of it, poetry after poetry after poetry. And this is what Motyer has come up with as a chiastic arrangement that he's identified. Let me just show you some of its features. All right, here is the outside doors. The Lord's harvest from a destroyed world in chapter 24, the chunk we'll look at tonight, verse 1 through 13. We have destruction, verse 1 through 12, and gleaning, the concept of gleaning as, a, as an image. Gleaning meaning we've gone through the harvest and then there's a little bit of grapes left, just a few grapes on the corners of the, of the field for the poor to go glean. And then they've come through and then there's whatever's left of that. Almost nothing is left, gleaning. Like, what? There's not enough cereal left in the box to make a bowl of cereal. That's the gleanings, okay? He does this again in chapter 27. There's destruction in 27, 7 through 11, and gleanings in 12 through 13. He opens it with this idea, and he closes it with this idea. And this is the kind of stuff that you spend hours and days pouring over. You know, you translate all four chapters, which I'm working on, you then put it up on, you know, all your translation up on, in the room. It looks like a beautiful mind in your room once you're done. You've got it taped up all over the house, and you've got your markers, and you're grabbing themes, and you're, and you're that's, a, that, that's gleaning. That's going to be purple. I'm going to circle that with purple. And you come over, is there any more gleaning anywhere else? You find it, and you find all these themes, and eventually, after a great deal of effort, you say, these are the things that he's echoing, and, and you ask the question, and it's always a question, is he making a sinner-seeking structure because it's Isaiah and he likes to do that? Is he doing something that, that has bookends and a center focus? And it seems Motyer is a respected scholar. See, a lot of times you find these chiastic or center-seeking arrangements, these A-A-B-B kind of things with the focus in the middle, like up here, um, F, Mount Zion in chapter 26, verses 25, 6 through 12. See, he's saying that's the focus of the whole thing, of the, the, the little apocalypse. And I like that. I like that the, the Jerusalem and the eschaton is the final thing, you know, is the, is the focal thing, I should say. But, and, it, and that might be right. And that seems something thematic we've seen in Isaiah already. But what we're saying is that most scholars really uh, uh, reject this idea of chiastic structures. They, they struggle with the, with the chiastic arrangements. And so um, um, sometimes people find them and they're not there. And this is that old thing, you know, we teach in Bible study methods class. Wonderful things in the Bible I see, things put there by you and by me, right? You, this is, this, a lot of people will read stuff and say, oh, I figured it out. 
Um, there is a, an evangelical sensation, superstar, a bestseller. And I don't have any envy or Christian jealousy about his publishing or any of that or his writing ability. Um, but he wrote um, a sensational book that is total, total garbage about how Isaiah uh, prophesied um, 9-11 in the United States. And America, uh, the American Bible-believing Christians sucked it up. They did Bible studies on it. I mean, the guy knows Hebrew. He's Jewish. So it has to be, you know, and it resonates with me when I read it. So that has to be, again, you know, not for nothing. That's got to be good, too, because I, I read it, and it, I kind of vibrate a little bit when I read it, except that it's just not what Isaiah is talking about. It's a total misuse of what Isaiah is doing. And I would say this on this particular topic, that work saw some themes that did echo in what our country was doing after 9-11. There were themes that echoed. And I wouldn't deny that there aren't echoes, but there's lots of echoes through the whole Bible in all things in history. And that's called application. That is not what Isaiah was talking about. And it's not what the Holy Spirit meant when Isaiah was inspired to write what he wrote. And, um, and so I, I just think that you've got to be careful about um, this prophecy sensationalism. So when you, when in the world where Hebraic is a mess, YouTube up any passage in Hebrew and you're going to find some goober that's got a garage, you know, degree in, in Hebrew and he doesn't know, but he, he knows so well. And he's going to come up with all kinds of things that aren't in the Bible. And because the world is full of kooks and it really is, and just don't please spend a lot of time YouTubing prophecy. But since the world is full of kooks, when you see chiastic structures like this, you want to say, I want to really be certain. And when you see Alec Motyer saying it, that's helpful because he's a careful scholar. And so I just, I find that interesting. So what, it, what what's the benefit of this structure? Well, if, if, if Motyer's right that this is what Isaiah intended to do, if he's right about this, then this would be something that would be fairly easy to commit to memory. You could hold the poetry together because you, it was going somewhere because you knew you were entering into an idea, focusing on Mount Zion, and you knew that you were backing back out of that idea and mirroring it. Some of the thoughts that are mirrored, the song of the world remnant in chapter 24, 14 through 16, the song of the remnant of the people in 27, 2 through 6, they're both just a, a couple of verses, and they seem to be having that same theme. And so, wow, that's pretty tight. Let's see what else is going on. The sinful world is overthrown in 24, 16 through 20, and the spiritual forces of evil are overthrown, 27.1. Now, that's not as tight because you have like four, three and a half verses here and one verse about the fleeing serpent Leviathan in 27.1. And so that's not as tight a connection, but it, I mean, it's, it's conflict, it's overthrowing. You could say there, there, maybe, maybe. Some of these are a little bit more obvious than others. The waiting world in 24.21 through 23, this is its own chunk and it's about the Messiah's coming rule in Jerusalem. It's one of the great bright spots in the passage, in the, in the whole thing. And D, D2, the waiting people of God in 27, uh, 26, 7 through 21. So, God, God, so he, he found the theme of waiting in both these paragraphs. So that's what matches. The song of the ruined city, 25, 1 through 5. The song of the strong city, 26, 1 through 6. So the comparison and contrast, the two cities. And that's really tight, the two cities. But then the focus on Mount Zion. Now notice that to do what he's doing, you've got to do it in Hebrew. You can't go by verse numbers. You can't go by what chapter things are in. 
You can't say, well, how many verses are in chapter 24 through 27, and then let's go to the middle verse and numerically and find what that, that doesn't work. You actually have to do it thematically. But that's, this is the kind of task that's involved, and each one of these little chunks is its own little poem, its own little poetry, poetic section. And I contend that really 24, 1 through 20 is a chunk, which is hard because um, it does, he does end a section on 20, but he's got all these things. So anyway, this is Montier's big outline. And in chapter 24, 1 through 20, this is how he put it together. Notice he put that together. He said, this is also sinner-seeking. The earth is devastated, divine action in the first three verses, and the earth is broken up, moral and spiritual causation in the last three verses. So, so devastation and breaking up. The withering world versus the personal wasting away grief over treachery and its outcome. And that is not a tight connection. As I'll show you in a moment, 16 through 18 is not as tight with 4 through 6. But what's interesting is always what is in the middle. The song stilled. The city falls and they're not singing God's praises anymore or singing for revelry. The song heard worldwide gleanings, they are singing God's praises. So they're not singing for revelry um, because let's eat and drink for the tomorrow we die in uh, 7 through 12. But in 13 through 16b, they are singing God's praises or somebody is. So that is a tight connection. And um, back to the question I started with, do you want to be miserable or do you want to be happy? The people who are singing because they're having um, bar carols, because they're, they're having a party, and what we do when we're married is we sing songs, and we have fun, revelry. If your joy and happiness is disconnected in its source and its motivation from God, then you can be part of C1, 7 through 12 where there is going to be no revelry, there will be no rejoicing because of God's discipline. But if you want to be happy, if you want to rejoice, if you want real lasting joy, then you need to join the nations in 13 through 16b in praising God because that's what you're made to do. And this gets to form and function. When we talk about a design process, we talk about form and function. In the, in the early 1980s, um, Mr. DeLorean invented a pretty interesting car. It turned out to be not very resilient, but it could travel back in time if it got up to 88 miles per hour. It was uh, an interesting experiment in form. But what I've heard people say about the DeLorean who had it is the gullwing design of the doors, which was one of the signature things that the doors opened this way instead of this way, is that that was a serious problem. It was a cool form, but the function of that door was to hit your head on it pretty much whenever you got out of the car. And then there were other, other issues with, uh, with long-term you know, stability and, and these kinds of things. And so gullwing doors, cool idea, not a great design for function. And that's kind of how design works is a lot of times we're artists and when we make a functional thing, we want to make a, a form that, we, that we're attracted to, like Samson likes the, Philipp, the, the Philistine woman. She looks good to me. I like the form, but he doesn't understand the function that God has called him to be a Nazarite to God, as we were talking about the other day on Sunday. And so, and so putting the two together is always important. And we say, in our elegant efforts to be good designers, we say form follows function. Form follows function. What does that mean? That means that I don't just stick a door somewhere because, well, that would look good there. We say, does somebody need to go in and out there? And if not, why would you put a door? 
What's the function of it? And then the form will follow that function. Do you know where we got that idea? We got it from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28. God made man in his own image because he had a job for man to do to rule over his works. God made you with the components, with the qualities, with the capabilities that he made you, the form, because he had a function in mind for you and me to accomplish. He wanted us to rule over his works in a delegated capacity. And what that means, and for him and with him in a personal relationship with him. See, the animals cannot relate to God like you can. He made them, they glorify him by being what they are and doing what they do, but they're not made to relate to him personally, interpersonally. They glorify God by carrying out their algorithms. And they do, they're instinctive, they have a program, they kind of operate the program. Study the animals, study nature, the birds and their flights and how do they know and all, they're programmed. It's part of their nature, how God designed them. And it's partly a genetic encoded program. And so that genetics is a language and the genome is, it's, there's information in that and God did that. It's another evidence of God as the creator. But you're different from the animals. You were made with the function to relate to him. And there is no abiding joy for you and me outside of our function. There is no life for mankind outside of our function, outside of the design. And when we take our lives to be for ourselves, when we take our day to be about what I want, when we say, not as thou hath said, but as I have felt, we're saying that we will not function according to our design. We're saying that I have this form and I'm going to do my objective with it. And that's the world. That's the human race. That is mankind in his independence from God, his autonomy, his proposed autonomy. And as you know, I'm going to tell you it's an absurdity. You're not autonomous from God. You function within the laws of physics, and he makes those stabilized by his very word of his power. You're not autonomous, a law to yourself from God. You're dealing with gravity, for one example. You're also dealing with the moral realities of the universe that God has encoded into history. So what is my appeal to you? Well, as your pastor... In terms of a personal appeal and encouragement, I would challenge you to cultivate this in yourself toward others and share it the same way. I personally don't want you to be miserable people. I don't want you to suffer the misused form that doesn't enjoy the delight of fitting within the designed function. One of the most beautiful things man has ever created, as you all know, is the 1911 45 caliber semi-automatic pistol. I thought I'd get a chuckle. You can drive nails with it. And I don't mean by shooting them. I mean by holding, holding the pistol by its muzzle over the slide with the handle sticking off this way and hammering nail. You can I don't know from experience, but I think just the reality of the physics of it, I think you can do that. 
but you shouldn't. Do you know why you shouldn't do that? There are a couple of key reasons why not. Well, we're assuming, I'm talking, of course it's loaded. Every gun is loaded, conservatives. Every gun is loaded. I don't care if you think it's loaded. It's all, they're all loaded. A, a loaded 45 caliber semi-automatic uh, 1911 style cold handgun is, is a hammer back. If it's loaded, it's hammer back. That's the reality. That's the only way that thing is designed to function. A loaded one is hammer back, which means that we're fighting gravity and the spring and all the tension with our safety to not have it go off. And so I'm sure that in most cases you can hammer away at nails with one of those things and it not go off on you in most cases, but I wouldn't bet my life or any of yours on it because it's a mechanical safety system and that hammer is going to fall at some point. Now, 1911 enthusiasts will tell me, oh no, it's perfectly fine, it won't go off. Well, there are other problems with using it that way. You could, your finger could slip on the trigger. Uh, hammering is a pretty high kinetic thing. All kinds of things can happen. That, that, that safety could flip out. I hate mechanical safeties, but uh, I love 1911s. What about the finish? I told you it's the most beautiful thing, one of the most beautiful things we've created from the artifices of man. What about the finish on the, on the bottom of the, of the slide of the magazine receiver, the, the magazine well? What about if you've got a magazine? Of course you have a magazine and you're scratching it all up. You're probably bending it. You're bending the steel or the aluminum or whatever, the, whatever the yours is made out of. What about the beautiful, beautiful polished wood grips? You know you miss the nail sometimes and you, you know, get a glancing blow. You're going to scratch up. My dad would have said booger up the, um, the grips. You're going to ruin what is a beautiful work of art in terms of its form and its function. And that's what we're doing. That's what the human race is doing with our lives. We are assuming, because we have a sinful nature that gives us this suggestion, we're assuming that it's all about us. And that is what God is permitting. But there is uh, an end state. There is a coming reckoning for the human race. For those that have already died... The reckoning is at the great white throne judgment for those who are on earth when our Savior comes back to deliver Israel. There is going to be um, a very more personal and kinetic encounter with God's wrath. And either way, you don't want to fall on the wrong side of the wrath of God. So verses 7 through 16 in Isaiah 24 really are telling you the the two options. Did you want to be in the city that fell and everybody was mourning? Or do you want to be rejoicing and praising God according to design? And I really hope that you believe me, or more importantly, believe the Bible that I'm summarizing here when I say, there is no middle space. There's no middle space. There's life and death. And Romans 8, 1 is, uh, Romans 8, 12 is so clear Let me read it. It's not 12, but it is Romans 8. In verse 3 of Romans 8, What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. 
He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not work according to, walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, Roman Christians, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit which dwells in you. So then, brethren, we're under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There is no middle ground in God's word between life and death. You're either walking in a functional death or you're walking in newness of life. And that carnality that we talk about, that we believe absolutely Christians can be carnal, that is functional death. And you're destroying your soul because you're getting into a habit of functioning contrary to your design. Let's read Isaiah 24. Behold, the Lord says... The, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, scatters its inhabitants. And the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world fades and withers. The exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty, the earth dwellers, those who live in it. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, few men are left. The new wine mourns, the vine decays, all the merry-hearted sigh. The gaiety of tambourine ceases, the noise of revelers stops, the gaiety of the harp ceases. They do not drink wine with song, strong drink or beer is bitter to those who drink it. The city of chaos is broken down, every house is shut up so that, the, that none may enter. There's an outcry in the streets concerning the wine, all joy turns to gloom, the gaiety of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city and the gate is battered to ruins. For thus it will be in the midst of the earth among the peoples at the shaking of an olive tree as the gleanings when the grape harvest is over. They raise their voices, they shout for joy, they cry out from the west concerning the majesty of the Lord. Therefore glorify the Lord in the east, the name of the Lord, the God of Israel and the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear songs, glory to the righteous one. And that's 16a. And then you have a major turn. But I say... Woe to me, woe to me, alas for me. The treacherous deal treacherously, and the treacherous deal very treacherously. <laughs> Terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the earth. Then it will be that he who flees the report of disaster will fall into the pit. He who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare, for the windows above are opened and the foundations of the earth shake. The earth is, is broken asunder, the earth is split through, the earth is shaken violently, the earth reels to and fro like a drunkard, and it totters like a shack, 
for its transgression is heavy upon it, and it will fall never to rise again. And that is one poetic unit of Isaiah chapter 24. Let's summarize the tribulation in the little uh, headline of verse 1. Behold, Hine, the Lord, that's Yahweh, will lay waste to the earth and devastate it. Bereshit bara Elohim, in the beginning, God created et ha he created the heavens and the earth. The word Eretz here is all through here, almost always, the word for earth is this word Eretz. And it's the word that God also uses for the land promised to Abraham. But it doesn't mean that Abraham's covenant land is the entire earth. It's just that this word has flexibility in its usage. But it's the word for earth here. The inhabited land of the earth. So are we talking about submarines? Not as much, because it's the part where people are on dry land. He, Yahweh, will distort its surface and scatter its inhabitants. So what is God going to do? He's going to lay waste to the earth and distort its surface and scatter its inhabitants. In verse 2, it will be as the people, so the priest. And this is a really neat poetic thing Isaiah does. As the people, lower rank, so the priest, the leaders who are supposed to be shepherding God's people. Lower rank in the sense of the shepherding task. As the people, the rank and file, so the priest, that one set apart people within Israel that were supposed to minister God's word to them. As the people, so the priest. As the servant, so his master. Now that's definitely authoritative hierarchy. As the maid, so her mistress. You with me so far? As the maid, so her mistress. But then as the buyer, so the seller. Is the buyer in the higher position of authority or the seller? Actually, in an actual transaction like this, a buying and selling, they're equal parties, if you think about it. There's not an authoritative hierarchy. The buyer has money that the seller wants, and the seller has goods that the buyer wants, and so they come as, as it were, equals. And the equal sign is that the money I'm going to put forth is the same value that you're ascribing to this product, and I'll trade my money, which I'd rather not have compared to the object, the thing I'm buying, so it's equal. And that makes a turn because the lender to the borrower, that's the lender to the borrower, the lower Rank has been the guy, the the maid to the mistress. Now it's the lender, the person that has you in arrears to the person that borrows and the creditor to the debtor. So there's been an inversion, which kind of jumped off the page to me when I read it. He he so far was going lower, lower to higher, lower to higher. And now he goes person with greater power to lesser power, the person in debt. And this to me is, it is the nature of the leveling. It doesn't matter where you are in the pecking order or on the totem pole, everybody's getting leveled in the conflagration that is the end. This is the great leveling. <clears throat> the earth will be absolutely devastated and thoroughly plundered. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't share a couple of interesting things about Hebrew with you. In Hebrew, we have this structure called a paranomastic, and I think if you'll just look real quick, I'll show you. This letter is a B, a bet, and that letter too is the same thing. And this letter is a holum, and it's the same letter here, and this letter is a kof, and it's the same letter. In other words, the word is repeated in two different forms. 
That's why it's called a paranomasia or paranomastic. It's two verbs together. The first one is an infinitive absolute, and the second one is a finite verb. And what happens when Hebrew is doing that is the writer is underscoring something. He's highlighting what's happening. Our favorite one is in Genesis 2.17, when God tells them they will eat, absolutely eat. Eating, you will eat. You will, to eat, you will eat every tree, every fruit of, of, of the garden except one. The tree of knowledge in the middle of the garden you will not eat, and he doubles the, the death one there. He says, when you eat, in the day that you eat from the tree of knowledge, you will absolutely die. He says the, the verb for death, muth, in the in, uh, infinitive absolute, and then he doubles it in the, in the fi- finite verb form. And that's, a, that's a, a feature we teach in first year Hebrew that is not a doubling of the action. You aren't dying twice or eating twice in Genesis 2. And you can look that up, but please do, because that's been mishandled horribly. It doesn't mean the action happens twice. It means something is being emphasized about the action. It's being driven into a great certainty or with great emphasis. And so absolutely devastated is bachak twice. Bet BQQ is the verb. Bachach, it will absolutely be devastated and it will be thoroughly bazaz, thoroughly plundered. So to, to devastate it will be devastated, to plunder it will be plundered. It just means that it's going to be completely gone through. So we, you know, in the rock quarry, whatever grit or whatever um, grade they're crushing the rocks down, let's crank it up a couple notches because there's going to be nothing but stone dust after this is over. That's the idea. For the Lord has spoken this word. In verse 4, you have the great fading. It dries up, it withers, the, the, the air, it's the land or the earth. It fades, same verb, it withers the world, the tevel, the inhabited world, uh, a, a synonym for the earth. So world, earth, or synonyms in English. I looked this up in the Septuagint and said, give me more, I need more perspective on this word Eretz and how it's being used. The Septuagint is the rabbis that translated Hebrew into Greek in the 200s BC. And what they came up with generally for Eretz in this passage is geis, which is the word which comes into Gaia, which means the Greek word for world, for the earth. Cosmos is another word that's often used for world. It has a technical sense, especially in John, for Satan's system over the nations, over the world. But cosmos also means the planet, means the, the world, the inhabited world. And so geis is like the, the, word, the word for earth or planet. And so um, you have these synonyms kind of floating around. But it's everywhere. The world is drying up. It fades. It withers. The inhabited world, the, they fade. And now not just the place, the exalted people of the earth. And this gets to why is there an earth? Why are, is there terra firma? It's really the place where we, the crowning achievement of God's earthly creation, have our opportunity, our resource of time, energy, effort, life, to serve him, to glorify him, to grow in a relationship with him, to live our lives for him. That's what the earth is for. It is for our worship of God. Is it not a resource God has given us and given us stewardship over? It absolutely is. He created us for that. But that's not an end in itself. That stewardship is toward that end of glorifying God and loving him and knowing him and having communion with him. That's the ultimate in our design that personal relationship. And so look at this, the, the theme of the earth and the inhabited world and the earth, okay? First of all, just the world itself is drying up and withering like, like, a, like a grape that didn't get plucked that's just withering on the vines, just drying up into a raisin. The people, the exalted people of the earth are, 
alongside that, the withering up. And it's a, it's a, it's a poetic image. It's, it, it, you know, it puts a thought in your head. It's like, of, um, who, is, it, is it Veruca salt that turns into a blueberry? Or Viola? Violet Beauregard. It was Vi- thank you. Let's keep it straight. Violet Beauregard turned into a blueberry when she wouldn't uh, stop chewing the gum that was not yet fully tested. Uh, it's an image. You know, that's, that's a poetic image. The kid swells up into a blueberry. Um, this is the people in the world are withering away into a, a weasened up grape. And, then, and the earth is polluted beneath, tahat. I don't know why they say by, under its inhabitants. That the earth, think about it, is the place that we're all on. And we're above the earth in the sense that we're standing on it. And our presence on it is polluting it. That sounds pretty good. Sierra Club PETA people are like, yeah, yeah. People are polluting the earth. In what sense? In their idolatry, in their wickedness, in their arrogance, in their independence, their uh, absurd attempt at autonomy from God. The earth is polluted beneath the, the dwellers, the inhabitants. Remember that theme that keeps coming up, the earth dwellers. For they passed over Avar, the word for Passover. They passed over laws, Torot, the laws or instructions. They blew past, another word for passing over, that's a rare Hebrew uh, poetic word that's just a, a, a synonym for passing over. So you've got to come up with a way of bringing that in English that means to go past. So I colorfully said blew past statute, Hulk. And they broke the Barit Olam, they broke the eternal covenant. And so there's the curse. Therefore, a curse will devour the earth, and they are guilty, those who dwell on it. Therefore, they will diminish in number those who dwell on the earth, and there will remain a very few men. So this is that picture of gleaning. There's going to be very few people who survive the coming conflagration that is described uh, in the book of Revelation. It mourns. Now, this is that section where there's no party. There's no singing before there is singing. This is that 7 through 12 section. The, the new wine mourns. That's an image for you. New wine is a cause for celebration. New wine means that we just finished the harvest. We've got our first vintage. And so we can rejoice with the party because we have new wine. It fades. It's fading away, that word we've had before. They groan or sigh, all the merry of heart. The people that were there for the, for the mishta, for the drinking party, they're miserable because their circumstances are changing. Because the use of this earth and this life to satisfy self is going to have its comeuppance. And so seeking to please myself with my life is really a dead end. But it may not be a dead end today. Today, you might get some temporary satisfaction out of seeking to please yourself. But this is where it is all headed. And so be wise. Don't be of the night. Be of the day, as we read in First Thess 5. They groan all the merry of heart. It has ceased the joy of the tambourines. It has stopped the noise of the exultant. It has ceased the joy of the harp. I should have put these in color. Verb first, it ceased, it stopped, it ceased. Same verb. The joy of the tambourines, the noise of the exultant, the joy of the harp. What's in the middle? What's in the middle? The second one, right? The one that's different. He used the word for stop, Shabbat, instead of cease. Um, I know Shabbat was on the outside, Shabbat twice. And the word for cease is chadal. This word stopped, chadal. It has stopped the noise of the exultant. So you have instruments on the outside, the joy of the tambourines, the joy of the harp. And on the inside, it's the 
people. <laughs> That's the focus, the noise of the exultant. Now, I must say that the verb is first in Hebrew by default. You expect it to be a verb first, and that's different from English. That's why all your English translations say the tambourine, the, the, the merriment of the tambourine or the gaiety of the tambourine has stopped. But I put it in interlinear order because I wanted you to see how tight the poetic uh, kind of rhyme is here. But watch what you've got. You've got verb, subject, verb, subject, verb, subject. It's all very tight. The thing that does the ceasing is the joy. All right. Do you want to be happy? Because whatever is happening here is not happy. The wrath of God, the judgment that comes on the waste of the resource of this life is not something you and I want to participate in. With song, they will not drink wine. And your English cleans that up a lot. Let's see, my English Bible says um, they do not drink wine with song. But it starts with Bashir, with song, Bashir, Bashir, with song, they do not drink Yayin. What do you think Yayin is? Wine. That's fermented grape juice, which all grape juice is fermented if you leave it long enough, and it isn't very long. But uh, Yayin, where we get the word wine. It will be bitter, Shekar. That's the word for beer in Hebrew, Shekar. There is no distillation of spirits into ethanol um, in this phase of history that we know of. But they did know for a long time before this, they did know that if you get grain wet and you leave the water for very long, that becomes something that has ethanol in it. And it's beer. It will be bitter. Interestingly, the, bit, the word bitter is applied to beer. It will be bitter beer to those who drink it. And that's not the kind of bitter that the people in Germany are going for. That is um, undesirable. <laughs> it is broken. The kir, the city, the kiryat tohu. Has anyone, or tohu, has ever, anyone ever heard the word tohu in Hebrew? Has nothing to do with uh, soybeans. That's tofu, and that's not in Hebrew. It's not kosher. It may be kosher, but I don't think it is. Tohu is your word in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, that says that the earth became a tohu vabohu, or the earth was, it's hayah, the earth hayah, a tohu, a formless and void, or a, a, a crazy chaos. And so this, most people would translate this, this word here, chaos, or a disarray. The broken city of tohu. And I've capitalized it because it looks like he's calling it the name, the city of Tohu, the city of disaster, the city of chaos. It has been shut up every house from going in. An outcry concerning the wine in the streets. So the city's shut up. It's a big disarray. And, and we were no longer singing and the wine has faded. And now there's no party. There's no basis for me to play like I want to play. It is darkened. What? All joy. Subject, all joy. Verb, it is darkened. It is banished from joy, the earth. The earth is kept away from joy. Do you want to be happy? I'm talking about God's happiness he wants to give you, which 
generally we'll call joy. Do you want to form, to live within form according to function? Do you want to know you're getting it right and be satisfied in that? That's the argument of wisdom throughout the entire scripture. Now let's pause for a second and talk about how that can be for us. Some would say because Jesus is your Savior, because you are in union with Christ through the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, because I'm in Christ and I share His destiny and I'm crucified with Christ and I've been buried with Christ and I'm raised up with Christ and I'm seated positionally in Christ at the right hand of the Father, because that's my position in Christ, they will say, if you really embrace these identification truths, they'll call it, which that's a good word. They'll say then, then you shouldn't need any imperatives of the New Testament. You, you, you don't need any uh, confession of sin because your sins are all forgiven. And there's an overdriving of phase one position in Christ to the exclusion of the reality of the broken sinfulness that we're still living with in phase two. You still have your sin nature. You're not resurrected yet. It's coming the death or resurrection that separates you from your sin nature is coming, but you're still dealing with this. And there is no joy in sin. There is some temporary diversion. There is that feel like it, I want it, I want to do it, but there is no joy there. And if you feel like you're having joy, it's not what God wants to give you. Of course, there's elation in rebellion. Of course, there's the excitement of I'm going to do something that I know I'm not supposed to, or I'm just doing what my body's telling me to do and I feel like it. But the real joy that God wants you to have is much deeper, and it's really beyond what your body can even experience, I believe. I think there might be an effect in your body in terms of the hormones and emotions and stuff, but, but I really think this goes far beyond just the physical experience in your body. The joy that God wants you to have is described in 1 John chapter 1 as walking in the light, as God himself is in the light. And 1 John chapter 1, establishing the theme of 1 John, which is fellowship with God, not whether you're a believer, but whether you're walking with God and fellowship as a believer is designed to do. 1 John is saying in chapter 1 that we, in walking in the light as God is, is himself in the light, we are having fellowship with one another. That's us and God. And the blood of Jesus, his son, is going on cleansing us from all sin. That's what God made you for. And the light is a reflection or a a way of describing God's moral infinite righteousness, walking in the sphere of that character of God. That's what we're made for. What stops it? What stops fellowship with God empowered by the Spirit of God and His filling ministry? Personal sin. Personal sin stops it, and that's why in that same little paragraph we're told if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you want the joy God wants you to have in fellowship with him? Well, you've got to deal with sin. But that's not all there is to the joy. That's, that's baseline. You have to walk clean before him and confess your sins in an interest of getting into fellowship and having fellowship with him. But the filling ministry of the Spirit that is to be ours at all times by the present imperative in Ephesians 5 is is tantamount to the Word of Christ richly dwelling within us. you got to be in the Word. You have to be in the Word with the interest of becoming different than you were before you opened it. I want you to have your way, God, in me as I consider what you're saying. And that is your spiritual life. 
and, and you need to talk to him about what you're coming to know and the questions that you have and the concerns in your life. And he wants you to talk to him. And that's a personal relationship with God. And beloved, if you want the joy that God is waiting to give you, you need to get serious about walking in the light and having fellowship with God and walking by the Spirit according to his word. Well, the coming, earth, the coming wrath of God for the earth dwellers banishes all joy from the earth, the earth from all joy. It has left this, in the city desolation, ruins, crushed to pieces is the gate. For thus it will be in the midst of the earth among the peoples, like the shaking of an olive tree, like the gleanings when it's over the grape harvest. When the grape harvest is over, there's a massive harvest, and it's not the kind that you want to have because everyone's dead except for just a few remnant people. It's a massive destruction. Then we change gears. They will raise their voices. They will shout shrilly, perhaps the people that are left. It seems like there's a remnant in verse 13. Um, there, there's, uh, in, the, in the midst of the peoples, there are just a few gleanings left. They will raise their voices. They'll shout shrilly, and that's in joy. And the eminence, a noun that I needed for this rare word for, um, for God's glory. The eminence of the Lord, they will shout in joy from the sea. And your Bible might say from the west, because the next verse has something that could mean the east. But the sea is the word yam, and the sea is to the west of Jerusalem. So that's where they got the idea of translating it from the west. They'll, they'll shout in joy from the sea. Therefore, in the, in the east, they've glorified the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, the name of the Lord God of Israel. They've glorified the name of the Lord, Lord God of Israel. What this means is that all the nations of the world are going to praise and glorify Yahweh. So it's your little hint of Isaiah 2 stuff where the nations are streaming to Jerusalem to be instructed by the Lord. From the ends of the earth, songs we've heard, glory to the righteous one. But I say, a waste to me, a waste to me, woe is me. Now you get this other turn. It was beautiful. It was glorious. It was like a glimpse that Isaiah had of this coming glory of the nations streaming to Christ in his coming kingdom after God's wrath, it seems. And now Isaiah is back to his circumstance in idolatrous Judah, and he sees that's a beautiful thing that's going to happen when the nations glorify God. But right now, I'm surrounded. I'm knee-deep in idolatry. I think that's what happens in the turn in verse 16. A waste to me, a waste to me. He says it twice. Woe is me. Where does he say woe is me? Right here. Oi. Aleph with an O says O with a Y says oi. Where you get oi ve. And it means funeral dirge. Razi li, razi li. A waste to me, a waste to me. Woe is me. And then he starts saying interesting doubles. He uses the word beged, bet, gimel, dalit. Here, 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 and here, and here. He says, beged, beged, vu beged, beged, beged. And in your English Bible, let me read it in my New American Standard, it says, the treacherous deal treacherously and the treacherous deal very treacherously. And I would translate it, Treacherous ones have dealt treacherously, and treachery, treacherous ones have dealt treacherously. That's the interlinear of all of these words. And you're like, wow, that, that's right there in the passage. He says the same verb and then uses a noun. He uses that same word five times. And so treacherous, treacherously, treachery, treacherous, treacherously. I'm just giving an interlinear. 
okay? So Isaiah's like, they're glorifying God in the coastlands of the nations. It's like he's got a prophetic vision. He sees all the nations praising God. But then it's like the, the bubble pops. The, the projector goes off, and then he's looking around at Judah in his day. He's like, oh, treacherous everywhere. That seems to be the idea. Terror and pit and trapping net <laughs> are upon you, O dweller of the earth. And it will be that the one who flees from the sound of terror, terror, remember, watch this. This is really cool. Terror, pit, trapping net, three nouns. Terror, pit, trapping net will be on you. The one who flees from the sound of terror will fall into the pit. And the one who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the trapping net. It's the same nouns. Verses 17 and 18, he says, these are the things, these are the three things that are going to get you. And if one doesn't get you, the other will. For the windows from on high will be opened and they will be shaken, the foundations of the earth. It is broken entirely, the earth. Broken entirely. This verb is an infinitive absolute and this verb is a hit pa'el, um, uh, imperfect. It's the same verb, ra'ah. Broken, broken, to be broken, it will be broken, the earth. He does it again, poor and hit porar. So Reish Reish, P-R-R, is the same verb used twice. He does the infinitive absolute and then the imperfect. He does it again and again, and it's poetry. So we translate, to be broken, it will be broken. We say broken entirely or broken into uh, dust, the earth. It is split completely, parar, to split. It's split, totally split. The earth is split. It is shaken violently. Um. Let's see, that's moth and then, or mot and hit motat. So mem mem tet tet, MTT is a verb that means to shake violently, to shake. So to shake, it would be super shaken. So he does all these double verbs, and I wanted you to see that. And um, again, have you ever heard a sermon on Isaiah 24? (laughs) There's a lot going on here that doesn't appear in English. It reels a lot. Why did I say it reels a lot? Because he doubles the verb for real, and they translate it, he reels to and fro. But it says, to reel, he reels. So he reels a whole bunch. He's, he's tottering. The earth, like a drunkard, and it totters like a shack. Heavy upon it is its transgression, and it will fall, and it will not rise again. So this passing away world is indeed passing away. And I believe when he ends this, the earth is in place of the people, the dwellers of the earth. And this is the end. This is where history is going. And so you don't want to be part of that dustbin, but that's where it's going. That's what you can expect. You can see how, wow, this stuff is saying there's coming God's rage, God's wrath on the wickedness. It's wickedness in Isaiah's time that has him upset, but then he's talking about the eschatological uh, end eschatological destruction. There's that ray of light that the nations are going to glorify God. And so the, we have a lot of the pieces of the, the, the clearer picture we get in Revelation and in Thessalonians and other places. But you could see that uh, thematically, prophetically, this is one of the big puzzle pieces, especially regarding the earth dwellers. Well, we have to close on uh, verses 21 through 23 in English and just in the New American Standard when the man comes around. So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of earth on the earth. Remember in Isaiah 14 when it's the king of Tyre, but I say it's talking about Satan? Hello. 
It's, it, it's both. S- Satan possesses people. This is one of his things. So the kings of the earth on earth, they will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon. will be confined in prison. That's starting to sound like uh, Revelation 20. And after many days, they will be punished. And then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts, that's Yahweh of the armies, will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And his glory will be before his elders. Who are the elders? I don't think it's angels. I think we're given something that, that John grabs hold of in Revelation 4 and 5. There are elders before the throne. See, this is, this is the prior stuff. We've all read Revelation, reveled in the new song in chapter 5. This is the prior revelation that talks about this. It's a throne room scene. And so who's left? The remnant's left. Who's, who's reveling? Who's rejoicing? Who's glorifying? Who's enjoying their function and therefore fulfilling their form? Who's, who's doing what they're supposed to be doing? It's the elders at the end. Um, have you ever heard that song, When the Man Comes Around? It's on the last album Johnny Cash put out. Um, American Songbook or something, but best song on there. I think it's the first one, is, uh, is When the Man Comes Around. And I don't have a, a, an audio for, to play for you, but you should check it out sometime. It's not, it's, it quotes scripture. Sometimes it misquotes it a little bit. And puts it in, but it's got a great theme of that there's coming the wrath of God. And remember the seals in the first seven seals, the first seven judgments that telescope out into uh, uh, bowls and then finally trumpets, these telescoping judgments that are the timeline of the tribulation in the book of Revelation, that's a sequential thing. They begin with seals on a book, on a scroll, and the one who is uh, powerful and has the right to open the scroll is the lamb. One a lamb is the slain. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his wrath that is going to be poured out. And that's part of the whole picture we have of our God, of our Creator. My favorite Christmas passage to talk about this year is Philippians 2, 5 through 11. We talk about the humility of Christ. We talk about Him humbling Himself before the Father all the way to the death of the cross. And we need to talk about that. We need to have that thinking in ourselves. But I want you to remember the whole picture of who He is. For this reason also is highly exalted and give him a name above every name. And everybody's going to bow down at that name to the glory of the Father. And that name, Jesus, is going to be the name of the king who rules the nations with a rod of iron. And this is what it looks like. And that is a glorious future. And it's real. And you may not feel that way. And you look at your life, you might say, well, I, you know, whenever, when that's coming. But don't be a fool. Don't waste your life. You only have so many days of life to serve him in this phase in anticipation of the eternal state and the judgment seat of Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we thank you, Father, for the word of God, for the challenge of Isaiah chapter 24, the challenge of the Hebrew of it. It's so neat the way it's written, and it's so challenging for us because of the way the themes switch. But we do have a picture, Father, of your wrath and our accountability And we thank you that we don't come under wrath because we are in Christ. We also thank you that we have motivation in the coming wrath of the Lamb against the nations and their rebellion against you. We have motivation to make the case in the power of your Spirit to share our testimony of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We pray for our loved ones and our families, Father, that they would not be subject to this coming eschatological wrath. We pray for the list, those people that don't know Jesus Christ. 
Father, work in their lives, work in their hearts, bring the gospel and its clarity to them, and use us if you will, if you desire. Let us be part of your harvest, for you're the Lord of the harvest. But whether we're part of it in the conversation or not, we ask for you to send the message at the right time and the right circumstance to our loved ones, our family, our friends, our co-workers, our waitresses, our servers, the people around us, Father. Help them come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. We beg it of you. In Jesus' name, we all said, amen. amen. Y'all hang out with me for three more minutes. Can, can we hang out? And it's number 171. We are transitioning to Christmas. Let's all stand up together while we sing this. Number 178. 